You know, music is not, that we sing on Sunday mornings is not mood music. Um, something that I think the Lord has kind of put on our hearts is that not necessarily every Sunday, because that's kind of a rut, but at least um, periodically, maybe more often than not, I will preach before, um, before we really spend most of our time worshiping in song. Uh, worship, sometimes song is sometimes treated as uh, if we'll sing and we'll sing loud, then God will show up. And God inhabiting the praises of his people doesn't, doesn't mean that. That if we sing louder, then he'll show up and we'll have the right mood for preaching. It means that we're, where God's people are and where truth is revealed and where truth is impacting people's lives, song is a byproduct. It just happens. It's like wool is to sheep. Song just comes forth. So um, rather than treat it like mood music, we want to treat it like it ought to be treated this morning. So I'm going to be preaching on the first part of the morning. Turn to John 12. If there are kids in here that are going to children's worship, they can be dismissed. I failed to do that. There's a time of uh, children's worship prepared in the treehouse. And uh, if you've got a little one that engages in the morning during the message, then by all means leave them here. They're not, not being asked to leave or anything like that. Before we climb into our, our passage this morning, I want to begin with prayer. And then I'll give you kind of some uh, context thoughts. Let's pray. God, I pray in these next few minutes that um, we will be authentic and genuine, engaging your word. I pray in these next few minutes that you'll find a people that are just all here. I pray that uh, you, by a divine work, the work of the Holy Spirit, will just create an attentiveness and eliminate a distractedness among a busy people. I pray even for those that may be here for the first time that you will... Just tune them in a way where they maybe have never engaged before, where they can just feast on your word together with us. Lord, I pray that we'll bring glory to you in the way that we submit to your word and we put our word above even our own thoughts and our own uh, inclinations, but we let the word shape our thoughts and our worldview and our trust and our worship. Lord, I'm not asking for you to bless that. I already know you'll bless that. So I guess corporately this morning we're saying thank you for blessing that. Lord, we recognize in these next few minutes as your word is exposed that there will likely be some who are softened and quickened to this word and then others who are um, repelled by it. Lord, we leave that work up to you and just pray that you'll find us faithful in exposing it and enjoying your Christ and being an authentic, genuine, salty, bright, aromatic people. And pray that you'll be honored and glorified by that approach this morning. Lord, also want to pray for uh, Kavanaugh Methodist Church and Jim Goodwin this morning. I pray for Jim and his marriage, Lord. I pray that it is rich and blessed. I pray that his primary ministry is to his wife and family. I pray that his primary resource and really ultimately only resource is spending time with you and your word. And I pray that that will just gush over on the wife and kids and um, family members and then over on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights or whenever Jim may teach or preach that 
people will be drawn to a deeper enjoyment of Christ through the ministry that you have through Jim. Lord, we pray for this church, for Kavanaugh Methodists. We pray for a people that are um, Christ-centered, Christ-enjoying and adoring, Christ-feasting. We pray for a true spirit of partnership with this church, Lord. Guard us and guard them from ever having a spirit of competition. And if that spirit is there now, Lord, please reveal it to us. And by your grace and mercy, liberate us from that sin. Lord, we want to be on the same sheet of music. We want to be brothers and sisters in Christ in this community with a Lord that's worth adoring out loud together, cubicle to cubicle, yard to yard, relationship to relationship, and just pray that you'll find the people of Christ in that place. We love you, Lord. We turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Trying to find a place, Cody, where I can see my notes. I don't. You may need to get a ladder or something, readjust this where it where it normally is, because although I feel like you, you can see my, yeah, that that helps. Okay, good. Sorry for the technical difficulty. I've named this message about four times, maybe more, and I'm having a difficult time really landing on a name. But here's where I am most recently. As of um, early this morning, God's glorifying work of hardening some while quickening others. God's glorifying work of hardening some while quickening others. John 12, where we're going this morning, we're skipping a little section of Scripture that we're going to come back to on the last Sunday of this month in our mobile worship time at the Civic Center. What, I'm, what the Lord is developing there, I feel like, is what I'm calling a, a message for Greenville. Between now and then, we're going to feast this morning on primarily verses 37 through 41 of John chapter 12. And I want to give you a little context. The book of John so far has really been what's called the book of signs. And Christ's public ministry is now becoming more a private ministry. He's in the final days coming up to his cross. And these remaining days, he's going to spend with his disciples primarily teaching them, preparing them for what they're about to see so they can understand the cross and so they can be prepared for the resurrection. So the context here is that it's almost as if we're sitting down with John, the writer of the book of John, and we've been watching him write for 11 and a half chapters. And he's written, he's taken a drink of coffee, he's gotten up, gone to the bathroom, comes back, writes some more, goes to bed, you get up the next morning, you're watching him. And then at this point in John chapter 12, verse 37... He leans back from his pen and paper, his papyrus and quill or whatever it may have been. He leans back, he grabs his cup of coffee, and he looks at you. And he says, now let me, let me give you a summary on what has happened in the last 11 and a half chapters. Okay? That's where we're going in John chapter 12, verse 37. Imagine that you're looking John in the eyes. He's got a cup of coffee in hand. Got his legs crossed. He's enjoying your company. And he's going to share with you what you've seen in 11 and a half chapters. John chapter 12, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here's the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Then in verse 39, therefore, they could not believe. 
For again, Isaiah said in verse 40, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Really what I'm hoping to do this morning is to break this sermon down in two parts. I want to look first at verse 37 and 38 as kind of part one of this sermon and address the sayings and signs of Christ and their impact. And then secondly, I want to look at the rest of the verse or scripture there for the second part of the sermon. First, the first part of the sermon, ask this question, consider this question. If the clouds parted in Greenville and God spoke to Greenville, would people believe? Consider this question. If, if Jesus were to show up and were to walk on Lake Tawakany, high-stepping on Lake Tawakany on a windy day, would people believe? If Jesus were to walk on Lake Ray Hubbard, high-stepping, or if Jesus were to step down the street to the graveyard, and we're witnesses to this, all of Greenville is witnesses to this, and Jesus comes up to a grave that is sealed and calls someone forth from death to life, what would happen? Would all of Greenville believe? We might think that surely they would, but let's consider the teachings of this passage today. First, I want you to keep your finger in John 12 and turn over to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, this two verses we're going to look at in verse 30 and 31 is a summary of the book of John. Well, really, it's the reason the book of John is written. It's a key passage that I go back to often because as I'm preaching from John, I want to remember, why did John write this book? And here's the answer. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. When I say signs, read signs, hear miracles. Jesus did many other miracles in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, this book called John. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is referring to seven signs that have been presented in this book so far in the first 11 chapters, really. The first sign was a wedding in Cana where the bride and groom run out of wine and Mary comes up. Mary apparently had some sort of role to play. Comes up to Jesus and says, hey, uh, can you do something about this? And Jesus, okay, well, he turns water to wine. That was the first sign, the first miracle. The second one was the healing of the nobleman's son. A man comes to him and says his son is sick, and Jesus heals him from afar. The third was the healing of a guy that's been lame for 38 years, laying at the pool of Bethesda, laying on a rotten old mat, probably bed sores all over him. Somebody apparently deposited in there every day. Bethesda was a pool that supposedly every now and again that an angel would stir the water, and if somebody flopped over in the pool at just the right time, they would be healed. Jesus comes to this guy and asks him if he wants to be healed, and this guy is too clueless to even say, yeah. He basically says, oh, there's nobody here to flip me over in the water when the water stirred. And Jesus says, pick up your mat, walk. And Jesus feeds 5,000 people with a few loaves and some fishes. And then Jesus high steps on the Sea of Galilee, walking on the water in view of his disciples. And then the next miracle, the sixth miracle, the sixth sign is him healing a blind man who's been blind since birth. And then last, Jesus raises a man that's been dead 
four days and whose body is decaying, he calls him from death to life. There's seven of these miracles. John frequently uses the number seven, especially in the book of Revelation, to be a picture of fullness. We're not going to get into this weird numerology thing because that is dangerous, but it's very appropriate to consider when you see the number seven that it's a picture of fullness, seven days in a week, a full day. And here we have seven signs. It's a picture of fullness of miracles and fullness of signs. In fact, in verse 37 where it says that there were so many signs and they did not believe that, So many is also translated high-quality signs. So in other words, not only was there a high volume of signs and miracles, but there was high quality of signs and miracles. And as I consider this, I think I hear from people sometimes, if we will just see a sign, if you will just get me off this plane, I will believe. If you will just heal me of this cancer right now, I will believe in you. If you will just get me out of this foxhole and back to the rear with the gear safely, I will believe. And my thought time and time again is baloney. If you don't believe in him and trust in him by faith, you will not trust in him by sight. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 1 is the passage that's referred referred to here. So go ahead and turn back there. Isaiah chapter 53. I want you to see it in the original passage. I'll give you a page number when I get there. Page 613. It's wonderful that John refers back to this passage in Isaiah, and it's especially appropriate Because this is embedded within a passage, a chapter, really, that's about the suffering servant. It's amazing to me, if you read this account and you see the response of the Jews, that the Jews didn't just swoop to him as Savior and Lord and Messiah. Because of a chapter like this that gives such detail of what to look for. But here in the middle of this passage, it really begins in chapter 52, verse 13. In verse 1 of... Chapter 53 says, Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This chapter is about Christ, and this verse, notice, is embedded within a chapter about the suffering servant. And what this is referring to, who has believed what they heard from us, that's referring to Christ's preaching. Who has believed what they heard? Christ has been preaching for 11 and a half chapters. And that statement, who has believed, I'll explain to you here in a moment. But secondly... The arm of the Lord refers to Christ's miracles. Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What they heard from us, Christ's preaching, is the same message that if it's biblical, if it's from this book, is the same message that you're hearing this morning. The very same message if it's coming from this book. And week after week, I never cease to be amazed that men can so easily dismiss this word. When Isaiah is saying, here in verse 1, who has believed what they heard from us? He's saying like he's incredulous. I feel the same way often, week after week, month after month, where people will hear it and dismiss it, or maybe hear it for a little while, and then they're gone. They get an opportunity to work overtime, and they bail on the word and bail on shepherding their family. 
Or maybe they've been heard in a church setting before, so they just bail on this food. Or they don't care about it at all. It never ceases to blow my mind. I'm with Isaiah going, who has believed what they heard from us? Like, what is wrong with people? That's Isaiah's statement. And this is what's happened to Christ. The very same picture. There's never been a better preacher. There's never been a better quality message than the one delivered by Christ himself. And the outcome is, who has believed what they heard from us? And then, who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is the same arm that touched the man that was lame 38 years. Same arm that broke a few pieces of bread and some fish and filled basket after basket after basket in the witness of so many people. The very same arm that's been revealed. The same arm that formed spit and dirt and clay to place on a blind man's eyes, and yet they still did not believe. Isaiah is incredulous, and I am too half the time. But here's what it makes me realize. This passage makes me realize that if the sayings and the signs of Christ don't muster belief, how in the world can I expect our bulletin covers are the slides that we use during worship, are the candles, are the, the, the setting that we're worshiping in this morning, are even a tract, are a program, are a scheme, are a method. How can I possibly think that those things can do it? If the prime alpha preacher with the alpha message preaches and conducts miracles in front of thousands of thousands of people, and yet they still do not believe? Why do I think that I'm better than Jesus? How could the church go there and think that we could somehow muster something where people would just go, well, they're going to believe when they see this and when they hear this? How haughty and how proud of us. Because the reality is that miracles don't save. And the reality is that methods don't save. And the reality is that programs don't save and models don't save. The only thing, the only agent that saves is God saves, period. And God saves in his time where he wants to save and whom he wants to save whenever he determines it will glorify him. This is how you explain why Peter, the famous preacher of Pentecost, could preach and thousands of people follow Christ. And then he goes somewhere else and preaches the same message and gets a tar beat out of him and gets thrown into jail. It's not Peter. It's not even the message. The difference there is God. God's people have found are so busy about finding, trying to find some silver bullet program. Man, if we'll do this, if we'll just get the right tract, we'll get the right presentation, then people will believe. If we get the right message, then people will believe. If we get the right facade or the right sign, 
are the right bulletin cover, man, then we're going to have revival all up in here. But yet my Bible says otherwise. If people didn't believe when Jesus preached and when Jesus conducted miracles, it tells me that there must be another emphasis. Now, this is not to say that we don't pursue excellence in our bulletin covers, in our preaching, in our facade, although that's pretty unimportant. It's not to say that we don't try and prepare for how we would share the gospel. We've got to put the onus on God. We've got to see God as the saver and not our method and not our design and not our plan. God saves, period, in his time and for his glory and by his design. These people who are hearing this this message that Isaiah preaches and these people who have heard this message that Christ preached from the water walking, bread and fish multiplying Savior that he is and was, it's by design that they did not believe. That's part one of the message. Now to part two. If the question first pose is if the clouds parted, would Greenville believe? I hope you can appreciate that if Christ didn't bring about that outcome in his setting, when he walked, when he preached, when he touched and healed, when he multiplied loaves and fishes, when he called someone from death to life, I hope we can appreciate that even if the clouds parted in Greenville, that it doesn't mean that people would believe necessarily. That is unless God wanted it. So why wouldn't people believe the next verse verse 39 of john chapter 12 let's go back there john chapter 12 gives us the answer you can keep your finger in isaiah because we're going back there in a moment isaiah chapter 6 go to john 12 i want you to see these verses i want you to know that i'm not making this stuff up john chapter 12 verse 39 Therefore, they could not believe. Now, here's the explanation, the passage from Isaiah. Here's why and how they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. That's the rest of the explanation. But let's go back to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. I want you to see the original passage. And I want to explain the context to you because it's only when you get that context that you're going to get that God is the hardener. Isaiah chapter 6, page 571 of your pew Bible. Isaiah has just seen the glory of the Lord. He's just been in the temple Look, I'm going to start in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, that's Isaiah, He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now listen what happens next. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who shall go for us? And then here's Isaiah's response. He holds up his hand kind of sheepishly. Here I am. Send me. I'll go. So God says to him, he says, go and say to this people. Here's what he says. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And this is God's charge to Isaiah. Here's what he tells him. He says, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God is talking to Isaiah. You've got to appreciate that God is charging Isaiah with, here's what your preaching ministry is going to look like. Now that you've seen my glory, now that I've called out for a volunteer and you said, here I am, send me, I'll go. I'm going to charge you with the character of your preaching ministry. Here's what your preaching ministry is going to look like and sound like. Your message, Isaiah, will make the heart of the people dull. The word there is also translated fat or calloused. Keep preaching, Isaiah. Your message, your preaching is going to make their ears inattentive and their eyes blinded. Your preaching is going to be chicken fried steak to their hearts. Your preaching is going to be earwax stuffed, gobs of it in their ears. Your preaching is going to be like Vaseline smeared all over their eyes where they can't even see anymore. And then it's no wonder that Isaiah responds in the next verse, in verse 11, he says, How long, O Lord? What a bummer of a charge. Okay, preacher, I want you to go preach in this city. I want you to go preach to this people. And guess what? As you preach... Their ears will be fattened, or their, their ears will be stuffed and deafened. Their eyes will be blinded, and their hearts will be fattened and callous and unresponsive. That is just so weird to me. I thought preaching was supposed to illuminate and reveal and inform and quicken. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13. I'm not going to explain it to you yet because Matthew chapter 13 does it for us. Matthew chapter 13 is a chapter we spent some time in as a people a couple years ago. We were considering some of the, the parables of the kingdom of God. And embedded within this chapter, the disciples are listening to Jesus teach these parables. He's teaching the crowds, but the disciples are listening especially close. And one of them asks him in verse 10, he says, um, why do you speak to everybody in parables, Jesus? Why? Kind of funny little stories. Why, why are you doing that? He explains to them the purpose of parables. Now, if you listen to this, you're gonna, it's going to open some doors for you to understand what we're hearing and seeing over in Isaiah and what we're hearing and seeing from Christ's ministry and from what we hear and see here in Greenville. So listen to this. Jesus answered, He said, to you, you disciples, it was one of the disciples that asked that question, to you it's been given, another version says, it's been granted, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, 
but to them it has not been given. The them, look back in verse 2, and great crowds gathered about him. The them is the multitudes. Jesus is speaking to the disciples, says to you guys, it's been granted to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But to those guys, listen, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Does this sound familiar? It's about to sound real familiar. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled and says... You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But then he says, he turns back to the disciples, he said, But blessed are your ears, for they, or excuse me, your eyes, for they, See, and your ears, for they hear. That's the picture and that's the explanation of what is going on here. The same story that illuminates some, confounds others. The same story. The same message. The same Christ. The same Isaiah. It preaches a message that quickens some to repentance and faith. Is the same message that hardens others to get out of my face. I'll pass on a small me and a big God. I don't think so. The same message. And it's wrought in little old stories, like little old simple parables, where some people go, oh, that's kind of nifty. <laughs> that's a cute story about some seed falling on the ground. And then others are going, oh, the kingdom of God. That's an unbelievable story that changes my life. With the same message. And the same Savior, and the same story, what quickens a few will harden the multitudes. Christ preaching did this. And if you've been paying attention for 11 and a half chapters, you've seen it time and time again, where people either wanted to worship Jesus or they wanted to stone him. You don't see any pictures of lukewarm response to Christ. Is give me a rock or where can I kneel? The same message quickens a few but hardens the multitudes. And the reality is here, folks, I realize we've got a lot of different backgrounds that come together at Cross Point. I'm thankful that I'm not about an agenda. Verse-by-verse <laughs> verse preaching keeps you from being about agenda and preaching an ism or an ist. I'm preaching the next verse. And the reality is here, folks, these people don't believe because they have an appointment with unbelief. God foreordained. God foreprepared, foreknew, and predestined that these people would hear and be hardened. But yet some would hear and be softened. These people, these people in Isaiah's time had an appointment with unbelief. And these people in Christ's time have an appointment with unbelief 
And as we preach and as we minister in Greenville and as we share our faith here in Greenville today and in your families and in your lives, there will be people that will have an appointment with unbelief. Let me show you that I'm just not making that up. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. I'm going to point out first who this book, First Peter, was written to. So you just listen to this for a second. Appreciate the audience. Who's receiving this letter? Verse 1 of 1 Peter, it's on page 1014. I, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. You hear that? Those who are elect exiles. Those who have been called and gathered from the four winds. The elect, the ecclesia, that's what church is in Greek. Ecclesia, the gathering of the elect. Even if that word is unsavory to you, you think it's about some sort of ism or ist, it's right here. The elect, written to those elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You could put Greenville in there. Because it's written to us 2,000 years later. We're elect exiles. According to the foreknowledge, there it is, of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with His blood. That's who this book, this letter is written to. So now let's look over at chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Peter is writing to the elect. He's writing to the believers, to the ecclesia, to the people of God. He says, as you come to him, that's being Christ, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Listen, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, the speaking of Christ, will not be put to shame. It goes on in verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. Those are the same people that understand the parables. Those are the same people that hear a message and repent. Those are the same people that are softened to the message, quickened to faith. The honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, listen, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Those who hear the parables and go, maybe a cute story, but it has no bearing on me. Those who hear about Christ and go, that passion movie was pretty brutal, but I don't think so. Not for me, not Savior and Lord. I don't really need Savior and Lord. I would even offer that those who treat him like an insurance agent like, I, I prayed a prayer and I walked an aisle, so I bought my insurance policy from the guy in the cheap polyester suit, Jesus. I got my policy, so I'm not, not going to hell. I'm going to offer those same people, treat Christ, that he recognizes that he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And listen, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. I hope you see that word. I hope it's in your Bible or there's some word that's translated similar and you know that I'm not making that kind of stuff up. That God has foreordained, He has foreknown and foreprepared that some will hear the gospel and harden and stiffen and repel and run. Forget about it. It's not for me. 
First Peter was written to believers in the Roman Empire in the early church, and Peter is telling them the same thing I'm telling you today, that some, in fact, most don't believe by appointment. Now, I can only imagine. Some of y'all are, I was thinking today, this message is kind of a combination of disturbing the comfortable and comforting the disturbed. Some of y'all are like, man, this is a great comfort to me. Others of y'all are like, how in the world could that be a great comfort to anybody? That, that's news to me. How can we possibly go there? I've anticipated that you may be troubled over this, some of you. But you're not alone. There are others that have been troubled over this. Turn to Romans chapter 9. You're not the first to be troubled over this. In fact, either the Romans were troubled over this, or Paul anticipated that they would be troubled over it. Or maybe God just through his sovereignty said, Paul, I want you to write this because I know people will be troubled with these sort of truths over the ages. So in Romans chapter 9, he's addressing that question. So maybe Rome is wondering, why in the world didn't all Israel, who had 1,500 years of temple sacrifice, tabernacle and temple sacrifice, who had 1,500 years of practicing the Passover, who was from the lineage of Abraham, why didn't all of Israel who had Isaiah chapter 53, go, well, there's the Messiah. Let's follow him. Apparently, Rome is asking that same question, or believers in Rome, and Paul is addressing that question in chapter 9 of the book of Romans. But specifically, in verse 22, he explains his rationale for how God could harden the multitudes, really, and quicken some. Listen to this, chapter 9, verse 22. Paul writes, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if God says, okay, all these Jews that are going to hear this message, that I'm actually going to harden their heart, that I'm actually going to blind their eyes and deafen their ears, that all that's happening for a purpose. That they will really, let's, give them, let's, be, let's treat them like shorthand, they will be vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. Why would God do that? Let's keep reading. Prepared for destruction. Now, here's the three key words. In order to. There's a reason. It's not being capricious. It's not being mean. There's there's a motive here. And here's the motive. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He's prepared beforehand for glory. You hear that? Beforehand. Even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That is the explanation for what you're seeing and hearing here in John chapter 12 and in Isaiah chapter 6. What if God in order to where vessels of mercy show up, endures with much patience vessels of wrath. I hope you're thinking about that and processing that a little bit and realizing that without vessels of wrath, there's no such thing as vessels of mercy. They're just a bunch of vessels. But God wants His mercy and His grace on display. I hope you know that. I hope you know that God has quickened us from death to life so that we'll be walking billboards of grace and mercy where people will go, 
that guy has been quickened from death to life? Wow, God must do that for anybody. If that guy, if God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, man, that's where grace shows up. I've got a painting in my head. This painting hadn't been painted yet. I don't paint, so somebody else is going to have to be commissioned with this painting. It's a picture of the most beautiful white rose you've ever seen. Most beautiful uh, leaves and petals, the full leaves, this white that's so white you almost have to shield your eyes. Beautiful white rose with a backdrop of pitch blackness. I want you to appreciate that without the backdrop of pitch blackness, who could enjoy the white rose? If it was a white backdrop and it were all just vessels, how could you appreciate the vessel of mercy with that rose being a picture of those who are the elect? You can't appreciate God's grace without the backdrop of his justice and his wrath and his destruction on mankind that deserves it. Grace is invisible without that backdrop. And how could that backdrop exist but by a sovereign God? If you believe that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, if you believe that God is sovereign, how could there be darkness without Him either allowing it or ordaining it? Nothing happens without His permission. The painting is yet to be painted, but it's painted right here. Well, I enjoy grace in the foreground, in, in front of, with a backdrop of the pitch darkness of wrath. You may be troubled with the question, why is it okay for God to make people who have an appointment with the unbelief? Turn to Exodus chapter 7. I want you to appreciate that I'm using my whole Bible you're making, I'm making you use your whole Bible. I think part of the problem when we have such difficulty with deep truths like this is because we've neglected our Old Testament or we've veggie-tailed it to death. It's just a collection of veggie-tale stories, and they're funny and they're great for kids, stories about courage and faithfulness. But we don't really look for God's redemptive character all over the Old Testament. We don't get to know Yahweh. So the only, rec- only relationship we have is with Abba Daddy. We don't know the Yahweh of Sinai, where Sinai quaked, where even a critter got close to Sinai and they dropped stone cold dead. We don't know that God, because he's the VeggieTales God, and he's cute. But notice that I'm using this entire Bible, and let's look here. I want want you to just think about this for a moment. Why is it okay for God to make people who have an appointment with unbelief? I want you to think for a moment about a sincere Egyptian boy. I want you to think about a sincere Egyptian boy who's just kind of hanging out in, I don't know, if Alexandria was around at this time during the, while Israel was in captivity, but in Egypt. A sincere Egyptian boy who worships Pharaoh, which was their god, and is actually worshiping Pharaoh's son, who's the upcoming god, which was especially appropriate that God took the firstborn. He said, not only are you going to see Yahweh's hand, but I'm going to take away your future where you see the true God. But imagine this sincere Egyptian boy. Let's say he's seven years old. Oh, he's the firstborn of the family, though. But he's sincere, man. He worships Pharaoh with all his might. 
Let's say he worships Pharaoh's son with all his might. Why is it okay for God to make him have an appointment with unbelief? Why is it okay that God would ordain this little Egyptian boy's death in the liberation of his people? Remember, we're using our whole Bible to get to know God's redemptive character. Look at Exodus chapter 7. Here's what God's up to. Keep your eye on the little Egyptian boy, the sincere Egyptian boy. And realize why I keep saying sincere is because sometimes we put sincerity in place of Savior. And sincerity becomes Savior. Oh, well, if he's sincere, well, that, surely that'll save him. Where's Jesus in that? But let's say, okay, he's sincere, okay? Keep your eye on the, on the sincere Egyptian boy and listen to these passages. What is God up to when he would ordain the destruction of some in the liberation of others? Chapter 7, verse 3. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? A God did. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, just hear Jesus touching a man that's been lame 38 years and saying, pick up your mat and walk. See Jesus making mud with spit and dirt and placing it on a blind man's blind man eyes and having him go wash in a pool of Siloam. And bing, he can see. Hear Jesus going, Lazarus, come forth. Hear Jesus, or see Jesus doing those things while God is saying this, though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, here emphasis on my, I will bring out my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. And even the sincere Egyptian boy, maybe especially if he's the firstborn, the sincere Egyptian boy. When I bring out the people of Israel from among them, my people. What's God up to? Turn over to chapter 11, verse 7. I want you to see. Keep your eye on the little Egyptian boy. It's where the last plague has been uh, threatened, essentially. Moses is going to Pharaoh. He's telling Pharaoh the details on the last plague about the Passover, where the firstborn will die. He says, when these people are liberated, listen to what he says in chapter 11, verse 7. He says, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God is making a distinction between his people and those who aren't. Remember the little Egyptian boy? He's making a distinction between the little Israelite boy who's six years old and who's hunkered down behind a blood-slathered door that his daddy slathered up with a hyssop branch from the Passover lamb where mama's cooking the herb-roasted lamb. He's making a distinction between that little boy and the six-year-old sincere Egyptian boy. And how can he do that? Turn over to chapter 19, verse 5. How can God get away with that? Let's look at 19, verse 5. God says to Israel, he says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You, Israel, 
you shall be my treasured possession. Even among, compared to, the little sincere Egyptian boy who his mommy and daddy are now burying. You shall be my treasured possession. Why can he do that? Because that last phrase, for all the earth is mine. God's motive in this thing is his lordness. Make up a new word. It works. His lordness. His ownership. All the earth is his. And so his vessels of mercy will show up in the forefield, the forefront of his vessels of wrath. That's why we teach our children. If you have children in the children's ministry, just know this. We don't teach them. Now, if you're a worker in the children's ministry and you have been teaching this, now's the time to stop. If you have been telling children or you are telling your own children, you're a special little snowflake and God has a special plan for your life. That's not a foundational truth for a child. A foundational truth for a child is, who made you, Daniel? Uh, Dodd made me. Why did Dodd make you, Daniel? Uh, For his own glory. That's a foundational truth for children. God may not have a special plan for your life, and you may not be a special little snowflake. His plan for your life may be to take the gospel to a bunch of cannibals and get eaten for God's glory. That may be God's special plan for your life. So let's lay a good foundation. It's not about you. It's about God's glory. I don't care if you are a sincere little Egyptian boy or if you are a sincere little Israelite boy, six-year-old. The whole thing is about him, that they may know that I am the Lord, that they may know that I make a distinction between my people and those who aren't. That's what God is up to. I thought about why we have a difficult time with this, and I think part of the reason is because we value life, and that's good. I hope that as you're hearing this message, you're not envisioning anybody going out in Greenville and going, oh, man, you're, you must be a vessel of wrath. <laughs> you don't need the gospel. Where's a vessel of mercy? Anybody have vessels of mercy out here? I hope you, you trust and know that we are to value life. And to we, we are not to respond to this message with being selective sowers. We are to sow indiscriminately at the cubicle over there at L3, at the warehouse at Rubbermaid, in our neighborhoods and our families, we are to sow indiscriminately because it's not our business to figure out who's a vessel of wrath and who's a vessel of mercy. That's God's business. So keep valuing life, but recognize ownership. For all the earth is mine. Another reason we have a difficult time with this is because we don't really have a, we do have a fallen view of, of fairness. <laughs> We do. We think, well, that, that's just not fair that he would operate that way. And the reason we say that is because we don't understand holiness and we don't understand our corporate guilt. We don't appreciate that every person that's ever taken breath is guilty before a living God just because of our relationship to Adam. Just in and of that, we're all guilty. But if you're like me, you don't need Adam. I'm guilty all by myself and I... I can appreciate that no one's righteous, no, not one, that all have sinned and all fall short of God's glory, that the best we have to offer is filthy rags, that I was born in sin, conceived in iniquity. That's our story. And if you appreciate that, as a rule, every single person, and then you see God save some, then you go, well, 
Now, that's not fair. Fair is that we all die. And now that I know that God is just, and I know that God is fair, something else must be playing there. And what's playing there is that those are vessels of mercy. Vessels of grace. We don't see all the world as guilty and deserving of punishment. That's part of the problem. And we also see the Savior of sincerity rather than the Savior of Jesus Christ our Lord. The little boy was sincere, wasn't he? The little Buddhist boy that lives in China, he's sincere, isn't he? Who's Savior and Lord there? We also think this means that we're robots. I've heard that question so many times. Does this mean that we are robots? Romans chapter 9 answers that question. Let's go there. I'm not making little of your question. It's a question I've asked before, too. But here is the 2,000-year-old version of the same question that Paul is anticipating in chapter 9, verse 19. Paul is anticipating their robot question. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? There's the robot question. And here's how Paul responds. He says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? (laughs) No, we're not robots. We're wicked, fallen, hard-hearted, stone-hearted, walking in our dead, in our dead in our trespasses and sins, people. That's what we are. We're not robots. And the point is that there's an ownership here, here, issue here. And God awakens from death to life, and He does it not capriciously. He does it for His own glory and by His own design. We still have agency. Listen. We still have agency, and man is still without excuse. Man is still responsible, and man can make decisions, and yes, even choices within God's sovereign will. How do the two of those work together? I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't have a tidy answer for you. I just know they do. Why I find great comfort in this. This gives me great comfort as a pastor. As a daddy, as someone who knows some people who don't know the Lord, why these truths give me great comfort is to know that He calls and He saves. If someone's salvation is dependent on me, (laughs) then they're doomed. If the salvation of my children is dependent on my parenting, they're doomed. If your salvation is dependent on my preaching ability, you're surely doomed. It's liberating to put all this on God. It's freeing. Why I adore these truths is because it puts it all on Him and it makes that cross effectual. It makes that cross not just kind of an attempt at a pitiful God to try and connect with humanity. It makes that cross as effectual and it makes that blood not wasted. It makes that cross powerful, not just as like this nice illustration of love, 
but as instrument to gather the people from the four winds. That's what that cross is. And that's what these sort of truths do for me. They diminish my dependence on method. They liberate me to preach every verse, even verses like this, and know that I can't scare you from heaven to hell. (laughs) They liberate me to feast on every bite and to expose it and trust that God is going to do His work among His people. They liberate me from the burden of trying to find that silver bullet method or program. And instead, I can dine on this book and unpack it week by week. We don't have to sit around looking for the silver bullet method. All we have to do is enjoy Christ out loud. Between Sundays as the people of God. That's the issue. That's what we're after. And these sort of truths liberate us from that. I'll tell you something else it should do. It should maximize your Godward burden. It shouldn't. If you have friends and family members who don't know the Lord, stop worrying over, man, I really got to get my presentation of the gospel down. And worry more over, I need to enjoy my Christ more. And I need to beg for the soul of my family member. I need to beg for the souls of those in Greenville. Your Godward burden will mean you're going to pray more. We don't have to guilt you into, man, you need to pray for people more just because God says. You pray more because He's the saver. He's the quickener. He's the caller. And if you love anybody at all, then you're begging for their soul and you're speaking to Him about it. Sure, take your time to think through how you want to present it, but put all the onus on Him. Because ultimately, He's the saver. He's the mover. He's the doer. You've got to know that these truths, however unsavory they may be to you, these truths are about His glory, because that's how He ends the passage in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw God's glory and spoke of Him. The thing that to the modern mind is repulsive. Oh, I don't like that. He is not, you know, I want my choice. My preacher told me God is a gentleman, which I've looked for that in here. I don't see that. I don't want God to be a gentleman. I want him to be a God. What a God gets, God wants. That's by definition, sovereignty. And Godness. And this whole thing that the modern mind says, I just don't like that. It just doesn't work for me. It's about His glory. He's glorified in and through this because He's the Savior through and through. There's no room for the guy who has a great altar call. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Man, that guy, he's got a great altar call. Well, glory to him then. Or, man, did you hear that preacher? Boy, that guy sure can preach. People are going to be saved through his preaching. Who's getting the glory? He puts it all on God. God gets the glory when someone is dragged into the faith. God gets the glory when someone is quickened from death to life. This whole design is so God-glorifying that it's only the people of God who could truly enjoy it. Let me pray.
God, I ask you to um, take these difficult truths and just wreck us. God, show us a big you and a small us. God, I pray that you will take us out of the center of the gospel and that you will place yourself in the center of our understanding of the gospel and that we will see that you are about your glory, that you are about your fame, that you are about making a distinction for your people and that no one is righteous, no, not one, and that if you save any, then it is a wonderful work of grace. Lord, as the people of God gathered this morning, we beg for those of our family members and friends who don't know you because we recognize that it can't be about our method. If Christ's message and his miracles couldn't do it, then it's got to be up to you. And we beg you for their souls. We beg you to quicken them from death to life. The same is true of those in Greenville, Lord. If there is a corporate hardness and corporate pride in this community that thinks we've got it going on and how dare us preach a big God and a small us, Lord, convict this people, this, this people that claims Christ in this community. Convict this people to, to get lowly and to see a big cross. Convict this people to see these rich truths and to become the desperate people of God that we should be. For we beg for that. We can't muster it. There's no sermon that can create it. There's no program that can do it. There's no method, no design. It's all on you, God, and it's for your glory. We're begging for it. I beg for revival in this community. Not revival, revival of a people that are amazed by grace, of a people that are small, of churches that are not in little cat fights between each other because they're so big, but a bunch of people who are tiny and who are singing because we're amazed by the gospel, not because it's Sunday morning. We sing now, Lord. In Christ's name we pray.